We are uh, part number four today on rightly dividing the word of truth. Um, and so I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is our theme text for this study. And it certainly, uh, even if you are extremely familiar with our theme text, it uh, will not hurt us at all to read it once again. I'd like to remind you, if you have missed lessons one through three, this entire series is very much of a building block type of study. That's one reason why it's been very difficult to not go just a little bit long on Sunday mornings uh, with the teaching, uh, just because we've got to get to a certain point. My goal is not to just check this off. But our goal and responsibility is to cause you to learn and understand it. If you, if I just go through it from the pulpit and you don't understand it, then uh, we haven't done our job. And so uh, we appreciate your patience and I've got some good feedback from these doctrinal lessons and we trust that this has been a blessing to you. We want you to be faithful in Bible reading. And uh, one of the most important things to help you in your Bible reading is to know how to rightly divide the word of truth so that you can understand the passages that you're reading. Because we're going to see here in just a few minutes that there are some problem texts in the Bible that will throw you for a loop And uh, if you pay attention to them. I mean, some, some verses that you look at that and you'll go, wait a minute, that doesn't sound quite right compared to what I've heard. And so uh, it's important that we learn how to handle doctrinally those problem texts in the Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse number 15 says, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Today we're going to be taking a look at Roman numeral 5, and that is distinguishing the difference between a testament and a covenant. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for uh, the privilege to be in your house today. Thank you for the sweet presence of God, Lord, the Holy Spirit being here and touching our hearts and reminding us that even the things that we don't understand, God, we've got a God that knows all and uh, that you've got it all taken care of. We've just got to stay close to you. Thank you, Lord, for the singing. It's a joy to worship you in spirit and in truth. And God, we thank you for giving us a Bible that we can have confidence in. And we pray that you would bless this study today. Give us understanding. Uh, Help us to be able to rightly divide the word of truth. And Lord, I just ask that you'd help me to communicate clearly. Uh, Father, uh, we're here to help, and uh, we pray, Father, that this time together would be a help to each and every one spiritually in their walk with Christ, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. In this week's lesson, we will begin to see the division between the Jewish Gentile believer present, and, and let me remind you that everyone, we saw last week that there's three different types of people in God's eyes. There's Jew, there's Gentile, and then there's Church of God. The Church of God is made up of both Jew and Gentile. Now, it's heartbreaking to acknowledge the fact that the, uh, the contemporary church today, and I use the word contemporary, I mean today, 
is there's just not very many Jewish believers in the church. And really for the last 2,000 years, there haven't been a whole lot of Jewish believers. Uh, in the early church, obviously, there were uh, quite a few of uh, Jewish believers. In fact, before you get to Acts chapter number 10, all of the believers were Jewish believers. But um, the present church is made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers, but we've got to distinguish the difference between the Jewish-Gentile believers present and the Jewish believers in the future. And there are passages of Scripture that we will see that it is so imperative that we rightly divide and distinguish the difference between a testament and a covenant. The relevancy of this is we've got to reconcile some issues such as pre, post, or amillennialism. If you're not familiar with the term millennialism, it's talking about a thousand year reign of Jesus Christ here on this earth. A premillennial is someone that believes that the church is going to be raptured and not go through the tribulation period, and that Jesus is literally, physically coming back to this earth to rule and to reign. The postmillennialist believes that the church is going to make this world such a wonderful place that eventually Jesus is going to look down and say, what a wonderful place, I think I'll come down and join them. Now, There was a time when the majority of Protestant believers believed in post-millennialism. I don't know exactly how you do that, at least not with current events in our lifetime. But then there's the amillennialist. The amillennialist doesn't really believe in a literal rule and reign of Christ. They believe that it's all spiritual. Of course, there are some texts that all of these different beliefs, they have some Bible verses that they will uh, take and use, but in many cases, they do not. In fact, in most cases, they do not rightly divide the word of truth. They'll take a verse and they'll use it to teach what they believe, but they have to neglect, ignore, or twist around some other verses because the doctrinal pieces of the puzzle do not fit on all sides. Rightly dividing the word of truth is the only way to make all of the verses of the Bible fit with all the other verses in the Bible. And that's why it's so relevant. Not only that, but there's the tongues issue. Uh, Tongues has, certainly in the last 75 years of the modern church, it has become a very divisive and dividing factor. Tongues has con- has caused a lot of confusion and division. And the reason is because people have not distinguished the difference between the covenants and the testaments in the Scripture. Then, of course, we have the signs and wonders that were performed by the apostles There are a lot of um, what I would call fabricated signs and wonders in the modern church. There are claims of signs and wonders. But folks, the, the bottom line is, is you don't see signs and wonders the way that you saw it during the times of the apostles. I mean, everything that's supposedly a sign and wonder in the modern church is always something vague 
something kind of general that really you couldn't say, oh, that's a sign, a wonder, or a miracle. Distinguishing the difference between the Testaments and the Covenants is crucial to understand the place and position of signs and wonders as we see them spoken about in the Scripture. Not only that, but we have the security of the believer. Distinguishing whether or not, as a believer, do I have eternal security. Once I'm saved, uh, do I have to do anything to keep it? Or can I do anything to lose my salvation? Distinguishing the difference between covenants and testaments are vital in that understanding. And then, of course, some of the teachings of Christ uh, don't always match some of the teachings of the Apostle Paul and other places in the New Testament portion of Scripture. We've got to rightly divide the covenants and the testaments in order to reconcile these problem texts. Now, let's take a look at some of these problem texts. And um, and then we'll go on from there. First of all, uh, Matthew 24, verse 13. Jesus said, in my Bible this is red letters, Jesus said, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. If you don't rightly divide the word of truth, you're going to read that thinking, oh no, I've got to endure to the end of my life, I've got to stay right with God or I'm going to lose my salvation. But the fact of the matter is, is that what Jesus is talking about, he's not talking about our salvation. He's talking about the Jewish believer in the tribulation period that's going to have to endure to the end of the tribulation period in order to be saved. How about the next one? Now, this is, uh, I got to admit, this one's a doozy. Mark chapter number 16. And let me remind you that all of these problem texts say what they mean, and mean what they say. I cannot begin to tell you how many commentaries that I have read about some of these problem texts and seen how that so-called scholars do such a dance around what it says and try to make it say something that it doesn't say. In some cases, very unethical. Some cases deceived, but in other cases, not even ethical in handling the scripture. Mark 16, verse number 16 says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Notice that Jesus is saying clearly that if a person believes and gets saved, so to speak, then these signs will follow. How many of you say, I'm saved? I'm saved, preacher. All right. Shall we test these things out? No, we're not going to, we don't want to test these things out. So what, what are they, what's Jesus saying? I'm here to tell you he's saying exactly, he's meaning exactly what he's saying. And so we've got to rightly divide in order to understand how this passage of Scripture fits in. It's amazing how people just, it's almost like a doctrinal buffet. When I go through a buffet, I pick the things that I like, the things that I don't like, I leave them off my plate. 
And that's the way that many handle the Word of God. They just pick the things that they like and understand, the things that they don't like and understand. They just kind of ignore it and pretend that it doesn't exist. Or like I said, they twist it to say something that it doesn't really say. Definitely you can see that Mark 16, verse 16 through 18 is a problem text. Matthew 15 Verse number 21 through 28, I'll give you just a short portion of that passage. But Jesus is speaking to the Syrophoenician, uh, also in the gospel, she's referred to as a Canaanite. And she's asking the Lord to to heal her daughter. And uh, Jesus said, but he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. Now, why would Jesus not want to help this woman who is reaching out to him, begging him for help? But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then he goes on and says to the woman, he says, It's not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to the dogs. Now, how would that go over in 2020 America today? You talk about a riot in Jerusalem. Oh my goodness, it would be a riot like you'd never seen if the mentality existed in Christ's day in Jerusalem was the same as what we see in America today. You say, was Jesus being a racist? No, he wasn't being a racist. He understood the plan and program of God. And he understood that God sent him to be, he sent him to save the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham. And then once they receive him, then he would, I believe, open up salvation to whosoever will. But at that moment, he was come to be the Messiah and the Savior of the Jewish people. You say, well, I don't like that. Well, that's too bad. Whether we like it or not, it's the way that it is. And I would, I would not, I would definitely warn anyone about challenging the integrity of the Lord Jesus Christ, thinking that you have greater understanding about the big picture than he does. Doesn't mean that Jesus didn't love everyone. It just meant that he came to the Jewish people. And that was his specific, you know, So often we think that everything in the Bible is about us. And folks, it's not. The theme of this Bible is not my salvation and your salvation. I know that may, that may, um, throw a wrench in your ego, but the fact of the matter is, is the overlying and underlying theme of this entire book is about a king and a kingdom and Jesus coming to restore what Adam lost. Adam was a fallen monarch. He was the king of the world and he lost it and sin came into this world and all of the suffering that you and I experience and observe in other people is all the result of what Adam did in the Garden of Eden and it breaks the heart of God. Breaks his heart so much that he sent his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But when Jesus was here on this earth during his ministry, he told his disciples, he said, don't go to the Gentiles, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, because that is what the perfect plan 
and God's heart was for His people. Don't underestimate the promise that God made to an old man back in Genesis chapter number 12 by the name of Abraham, also known as the friend of God. And God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless them that bless you. I'm going to curse them that curse you. And in thee shall all of the families of the earth be blessed. In thee. And so Israel is God's chosen people. And even though God set them aside, in next week's lesson, we're going to see that. We're going to be in Romans 11. We're going to be in the book of Hebrews next week. We're going to see it crystal clear. Even though God has set them aside for the time period, He hasn't forsaken them for good. He's going back to them, folks. And it's going to be a glorious time for Him and for the inhabitants of this earth. Wonderful time. And then, as I've already said, much of the book of Hebrews is filled with some problem text. I'll give you a few examples. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse number 4 says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. Folks, what's that saying? That's saying that if you are saved and you fall away from God, you can't get it back. Now, don't you find it interesting that so many of these Protestant organized religions that teach you can lose your salvation... They tell you you can lose it and then you can get right with God and get it back again. I'm not sure how they reconcile that. What, you get born again and then you get unborn and then you get born again again? And then you get unborn and then you get born again again again? I, I know that that sounds funny, but that's really what they're implying. And yet the scriptures that they use that they take out of context and do not rightly divide the word of truth, they apparently show that you can lose your salvation. But this one right here says, you're toast if you ever lose it. Now that's a problem text. And you know what? That's why it's it's so important as a pastor that I teach you knowledge and understanding and how to rightly divide the word of truth because I don't want you ignoring that. Hey, if that verse that we just read applies to us, then we better take it serious. And I'm probably, I I, I know for me personally, if this verse, if this passage of Scripture applies to you and I the way that it says that it applies, then we might as well go eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die because, hey, I've lost my salvation. How about you? Now, I'm not saying that I've turned away from Christ, but how about, how about this next one? Um, actually, um, I'll, I'll get to the next one here in just a minute after the next two ones. Got them in a little bit different order here. My, my brain went in a different direction than my notes. Not the first time that's happened. Uh, let's look at another problem text. Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 11 says, and we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. What's that saying? That's saying works. Diligence is work. 
And it says that we're supposed to show that to the end. Sounds kind of like Matthew 24, enduring to the end, does it not? How about Hebrews 4, verse number 11? Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Hebrews 4.11 says we're supposed to labor to enter into that rest. Hey, what about Ephesians 2.8.9? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We have a problem text right here if we don't figure out how to rightly divide the word of truth. And then the one that I was uh, uh, thinking about here just a moment ago, Hebrews 10, verse number 26, says, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. So that goes hand in hand with Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, if we sin willfully. Now listen, I've got, uh, I've got a lot of sins in my past. Uh, I got some, I got some sins before I got right with God. But I, I, I mean, it's sad and it's a shame, but I've got some sins in my life since I got right with God. Some 35, 36 years ago. Some of them were, I just stumbled into something. But, I think that all of us would agree that there's some other sins that were willful. It's like, I knew that I was doing wrong, and I just did it anyways. I've got a problem here. This says that if I do that willfully, then I'm toast. There's no more sacrifice for my sins. Many of these problem texts appear in the book of Matthew and in the book of Hebrews. Now, there are other problem texts that are relevant to our study this morning. There are some in the book of Acts, but Matthew and Hebrews are definitely the biggest ones. Here's a brief explanation. Well, the book of Matthew, all four of the Gospels, three of them are very similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called the synoptic Gospels. The book of John is very different. It kind of stands alone, even though it has some of the same stories and um, and similar accounts that the other Gospels have. But of the three Gospels, every Gospel presents Christ with a different emphasis. The book of Luke. Luke presents Jesus as the Son of Man. Mark presents Jesus as a servant. But Matthew's Gospel without any fear of contradiction, presents Jesus Christ as a king. We can go to the very first verse of the book of Matthew and see that clearly. It says, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew, in chapter 1, traces Christ's genealogy through that kingly line back to David, whereas Luke's genealogy traces him back to Adam as the son of man. So the emphasis in the book of Matthew is Jesus Christ the king. Now, the book of Hebrews is clearly written to, well, the Hebrews. How about that? Now, now, I know what some smart alecks say. They say, well, the book of Romans doesn't, isn't just to people that are Roman. It, it applies to Irish people too. 
and all other. I mean, regardless, the book of Romans is a Gentile book, okay? But the book of Hebrews is written, doctrinally speaking, to the Hebrews. Now, if you will recall our very first lesson, we said that you've got to rightly divide the application of scriptures. There's a doctrinal, there's a practical, and there is an inspirational and however you label that, the bottom line is the entire Bible is not written to us, but it's certainly written for us. And so just because Hebrews is not written doctrinally to us, the church, does not mean that we can't benefit greatly from the book of Hebrews. And you know, the, we're going to see here in just a few minutes that we can actually benefit in some ways doctrinally from the book of Hebrews even though it's not doctrinally written to us. I'll explain that here in just a little while. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 1 says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Who's the fathers? That's speaking of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of the descendants. It's God spoke to the Jewish people in times past by prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us, Hebrews, that's the context right here, spoken to us by his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, that's as a king and a kingdom by whom also he made the world's. The key to understanding the book of Hebrews without over-dispensationalizing it, I made up that word, over-dispensationalizing it. What I mean by that is we don't chop the book of Hebrews out and just set it aside. No, we leave it right there with the Pauline epistles. We leave it with the rest of the Bible, but we rightly divide it. And we take the doctrine that applies to us out of it, that that does not apply to us in this time period. We know where how to divide it and put it in its proper category. It's necessary. It's a key to understand, to distinguish the difference between the New Testament and the New Covenant. Very few scholars and commentators do so. Uh, if you want to study the book of Hebrews doctrinally, you can go, you can go online, you can go to a book, bookstore and buy everything you can get your hands on on the book of Hebrews. And you know what? You're probably going to be sadly disappointed that you're not going to get doctrinal explanations for the problem text that we just looked at just a moment ago. Most of the commentators and scholars just kind of just gloss over it and move on to other things. Or they run to the Greek language and try to twist it around to say something different and so forth. But this is a key to understanding. You don't have to hypothesize. You don't have to just be devotional with those truths. We can know what those verses are talking about and to whom they are talking. Now let's take a look at these two words, covenant and testament, and their word usage in the Bible. Because I think the usage is, is important. The word covenant appears 292 times in the Bible. 
And of those 292 times we see that word, we find it in the Old Testament in 254 verses. That means that it appears multiple times in the same verse. And in the New Testament, we find the word covenant 18 times. Obviously, that word covenant was very important to the Jewish people during the time period that we call the Old Testament. Now, the word testament appears 14 times in the entire Bible. In the Old Testament, it doesn't appear at all. In the New Testament, it appears 13 times. Now, here's an interesting truth that I think is very profound, very significant. The word covenant is not used in the Pauline epistles. If you'll recall, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles... He is the one to whom God revealed the mystery of the church age, and the word covenant is not used in his writings except when referencing the covenants that were made with Israel. So nowhere does Paul write to the church and give us any doctrinal um, indication that we are living under a covenant that God made with the church. He only refers to the covenants that God made with Israel. The word testament, however, appears three times in Paul's writings. One of the times he's quoting Jesus regarding communion. And here are the other two. 2 Corinthians 3, verse number 6. "...who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament." Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Paul's giving us in the church age an understanding that we are not saved by the Old Testament law. That's the letter. That's the list, if you will. That cannot save us. The Old Testament law doesn't save us. It just reveals to us how lost that we are. So he said, the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. And then in verse number 14, he says, regarding Israel, he says, But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away and the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. So Paul refers to the Hebrew Scriptures, Genesis through Malachi, he refers to them as the Old Testament. Now, the word origins, let's take a look at that for just a moment. The word covenant in the Hebrew language is the word bereath. And in the Greek language, it's the word, uh, I'll I'll do the best I can to pronounce it, diatheke. And um, in the word testament in the Hebrew is obviously not applicable because it doesn't appear in the Old Testament. But uh, the word testament in the Greek New Testament um, appears in the form of the Greek diatheke. You say, wait a minute, it's the same word. Absolutely. And folks, this is what I believe the reason that has caused so much confusion as to why the average believer today honestly believes that the word testament and the word covenant are just two different words saying the same thing. And they're not. Just because they came from the same Greek word doesn't mean 
that they should have been translated the same. There are multiple, multiple instances all through the Greek New Testament in which the same Greek word is used, and in the context in which it's used, it's translated into a totally different English word. That's just the norm. Now, I also want to just remind you of this. Brother Ben alluded to it on Wednesday night in his study on the pronouns of of the archaic pronouns of the King James Version. And that is this, that I lost my train of thought. Come on, Mitchell. Come on, brain. Where's Ben? Help me, Ben. What'd you say? (laughs) Um, Totally left me. I apologize. Sorry. So let, let me move on with what I know to talk about. <laughs> All right. So uh, the use of the same Greek word is used for covenant. Oh, I, I I figured it out. So the 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 Bible, the New Testament, was written in Greek, but not in the classical Greek that we know of today. It was written in Koine Greek. That would be the common Greek language of the people, the trade language. Now they had a more formal Greek language, even in in the days of the apostles. But the Koine Greek was the common language because the Roman Empire, you know, the Greek language was the, the language of commerce in the Roman Empire. The language of Rome was not Greek, it was Latin. And so the Greek, I believe that God put the New Testament Scripture in the language that the most people could understand without having to learn a new language. And that was Koine Greek. Now, because it was the common language, there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, grammar and documentation. And so, to be quite honest with you, it is a dead language that we don't know the specific grammar of. We can go and we can learn grammar and syntax and all of those details of the classical Greek language, but the Koine, we don't have it. And so in many cases, when you translate, you either, you're either taking a shot in the dark or you're potentially mistranslating it by just taking that word and carrying it in straight into English. But what the AV1611 translators did is what any intelligent, honest translators should do, they went back to the early writings in the early church, which incidentally, many of them were Latin. And so they would go to some of the Latin translations that were translated closer to the time of those Greek originals, and they would see how that the early church Uh, the early Christians, how they handled those words, because they're going from one language to another themselves. They're going from Greek to Latin. But in their time period, both of those languages were very common and very familiar. And so the AV translators knew how to distinguish the difference when a word, a Greek word, the same word is used in two different context, they knew how to translate it and to divide the difference 
between the two. I hope I made that clear. I I certainly tried. Now, as far as word meanings are concerned, uh, the word covenant... uh, Oh, and I wanted to say this too. I, I believe that even though covenant and testament are two very different words that have different meanings, I believe that when the Apostle Paul wrote the word um, diatheke for testament, that I think the Holy Spirit is letting us know that in the context of Scripture, while covenant and testament are different, they maintain a connection. They're, they're connected to one another. Now, by way of word meanings, the word covenant is a mutual consent or agreement between two or more parties. And a covenant is generally conditional. Uh, The person that's making the covenant says, if you do blank, then I will do blank. It's a conditional statement. That's the whole nature of the word covenant. The word testament, however, is not the same as an agreement between one or more, two or more parties. A testament is a solemn, authentic writing by which a person declares his will at as the disposal of his estate and effects after his death, otherwise called a will. We refer to a person's last will and testament. In many cases, it's the way that the person who dies bestows blessings upon the recipients of that testament. The word testament also carries the meaning of the declaration of something important or serves as a sign or evidence of a specified fact, event, or quality. I'll give you an example. Here's a, here's a phrase. The growing attendance is a testament to the event's popularity. So I, I believe that that second definition is definitely relevant with the use of testament in the scripture. It's a, it's an authentic writing. It is, um, it is something that's important that serves as a sign or evidence of a specified fact, event, or quality. So the Old Testament goes back before Moses. Now in the book of Hebrews, when the writer refers to the Old Covenant, he's talking about the covenant that God gave Israel through Moses. But there were covenants that went before Moses all the way back to Abraham, back to Noah. But the testament goes back even further than that. Can you think of when the first blood sacrifice took place in human history? It was after the expelling from the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve's son Abel offered to God out of the out of his flock he gave to God a blood sacrifice that was the beginning of the testament if you will we call it the old testament but it wasn't old to them that lived during that time period and so testament and covenant are different words the word testament in scriptures is always associated with death and blood anywhere you see it there's going to be some connotation to death and blood. Jesus said in Matthew 26, verse 28, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. 
in Hebrews 9.15, and for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, speaking of Christ, by the way, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now, what Hebrews is showing us is how much better and superior the New Testament is to the Old Testament. If you lived in the Old Testament times, you could bring that animal sacrifice to the priest. You could get your sins remitted, but your sins would not be completely gone and dealt with. Only Jesus Christ could completely take care of the sins of the human race. And so we have so much better of a testament than the old, than the, the people during the Old Testament time could even imagine. How about Hebrews 9 verse number 16? For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. Now it's interesting, that's the same Greek word as what's used for covenant, but obviously the context of Hebrews 9.16 shows us that this isn't, this wouldn't even make sense if it was talking about a covenant, because to make a covenant with someone, the person making the covenant doesn't have to die. So that's why it's imperative that we rightly divide and distinguish the difference between a covenant and a testament. Let's look briefly at some of the covenants that we find in the Bible. The first one that we find, number one, is the Noahic covenant. It's the covenant that God made not only with Noah and his family, but he made it to all the descendants of Noah. I happen to be a descendant of Noah. Do you? So God made a promise, and what that covenant was in Genesis 6 and Genesis 9, that he will never destroy the earth with a flood again. I was beginning to question that yesterday. I still, I, I, I mean, it just really frosts me that the liberals have taken away the symbol of the rainbow from us. When I see the rainbow, I don't see diversity. I see God's promise. I look at that and I say, thank you, Lord. Because, hey, uh, don't you think that what's going on in planet Earth today, that we don't deserve for God to destroy us with a flood? The thoughts and imaginations of men's heart only evil continually? My goodness, I thank God for that covenant that He made that we don't have to worry every time we get a downpour. Oh, here's the judgment of God. God said, look. I'm not going to do that again. What a merciful, what a gracious God that he is. The second covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. This is the promise that God made to Abraham, and it it, it entailed several different aspects. Uh, It entailed the promise of the land of Palestine, Genesis 15, 18. God said, Abraham, at that time he said, Abram, He said, I want you to leave the land of your nativity, and I want you to go to a land that I'm going to give you. You've never seen it before, but I want you to pack up, leave your entire family, and just trust me by faith and go to that land because I'm going to give it to you and to your descendants. You know what? I don't get all worked up when they say, when they talk about the Palestinians and... um, 
in uh, the Middle East. Uh, I go back to the Scripture. And you know what? There is even more land than we know as Israel today that God said, I'm promising it to your descendants, Abraham. Then there's the promise to give and multiply his seed. Abraham didn't have any children. And God said, I'm going to give you children by your wife, Sarah. And then I'm going to multiply them as the sand, of the, the, the stars of heaven and the sand of the sea. And then there was the, um, the, the condition of circumcision. Genesis 17, verse number 10. All of these are part of a covenant where God is making an agreement with Abraham. If you will, then I will. And it was a mutual agreement between God and Abraham. Number three, the Mosaic Covenant, which was made to the nation of Israel. And you know, that's important to distinguish. That covenant was made specifically with Israel. They were a chosen nation. And it was through that covenant that God brought them as a people. They were a culture in Egypt, but they did not become a nation until God brought them out. God said to Israel that you're going to be a special nation, Exodus 19, different than all the other nations of the world. And by the way, I, I, think, that, I think that it's great that America and our founding fathers chose the God of Israel to be our God. And I'm certain that that's the reason that we have been so blessed. It's certainly not because we deserve it. But I'm thankful for that. But you know what? We need to remind ourselves that America is not God's chosen nation. God didn't choose us. We chose Him and He blessed us for it, just like He said He would. But uh, we're not anything special. I know that hurts, but it's the truth. He said to Israel through the Mosaic Covenant, you're going to have a special way of life. You're going to live different than all the other nations. He said, I'm going to give you the Sabbath day. And uh, incidentally, the Sabbath day was a um, part of the covenant that God made to the Jew. Uh, I'm going to give you the Ten Commandments. And uh, these commandments were given specifically to the Jew. Does that mean that the morality of the Ten Commandments doesn't apply to us? Oh, absolutely not. Even Paul in Romans chapter number 13 quoted some of those moral commandments and said, Thou shalt not. But we have to divide the difference between the moral and the ceremonial aspect because the ceremonial aspects of that covenant have nothing to do with the Gentile or the church. telling you what, if you want to be consistent in saying that the church has replaced Israel, then you're going to have to put yourself under all of those covenants, the dietary laws, the ceremonial laws, and all of those different things. And you know what? I don't know anybody that even comes close to being consistent. I don't even know anybody that says that we're supposed to worship on the Sabbath day that is even consistent with the scripture. They don't, they don't, they say, well, they say, come to, come to our church on Saturday and uh, we'll do all these things for you. You're not supposed to serve on the Sabbath day. 
You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath day. I, I, I don't know what they're, I don't know what, what church is like, but there's a lot of work that goes into this church service. So if you're going to not, if you're not going to rightly divide the word of truth, you're going to find all kinds of, uh, all kinds of kinks in your doctrine. Then, of course, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, and the priesthood. Quickly, number four, the Davidic covenant. This is God's covenant with David that he said, it's it's not going to fail that any of your descendants sit on the throne in Israel, in Jerusalem. Now, there's no descendant of David sitting as king of Israel today. But there's not someone from another family that's not a descendant of David. There is no king today. Which, by the way, is part of the covenant. God said, if you'll follow me, then this won't fail. But if you reject me, God says, I'm going to reject you. There was a 70-year Babylonian captivity that God totally just annihilated their kingdom. And you know, it hasn't, it hasn't been restored since. There's been no king in Jerusalem since the Babylonian captivity. You know why that is? Because Daniel's prophecy said that the times of the Gentiles will be ushered in. And it's going to continue that way until Jesus comes back and sits on the throne of his father David. Number five, God talks about a new covenant with Israel. He says, I'm going to put my laws in your mind and in your heart. You're going to return to the promised land. It's going to be a peaceful land with no harm from beasts. Hey, won't that be a blessing? No harm. You don't have to worry about getting snake bit. Don't have to worry about getting attacked by a bear. Don't have to worry about getting rabies from a squirrel. So why do you say that? I'm just trying to get a little closer to home here. He said it's going to be a peaceful land. And according to the Scripture, it begins with John the Baptist. He said, well, why didn't it happen? Well, because they rejected it. That's a covenant. It's an agreement. And it's conditional. Number six, the Bible talks about an everlasting covenant, which is the blessings of salvation. This is not made specifically with the church, but it's certainly for the church and Connected to that are what the Bible calls the sure mercies of David, Acts 13, Romans chapter number 4. And that's something that we get in on, folks, is the sure mercies of David. Imputed righteousness. God, When David sinned, God didn't have him killed according to the old covenant. He could have and very well would have been right, but he gave him sure mercies, just like God would be within, uh, within His justice to have every single one of us killed for our sin. But instead, we get in on those sure mercies, those blessings, if you will. So, The New Testament applies to everyone from the time of the cross to eternity future. Now I'm going to repeat that. And some of the things that I'd hope to cover this morning, I'm going to cover next week. But the New Testament 
Remember, a testament is associated with death and blood. The New Testament began at the cross of Calvary. And it continues from that moment in time through all eternity future. It doesn't matter if you're Jew-Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're living in the church age, the tribulation period, the kingdom, or off into eternity. The New Testament and the blessings and all that go with that, that it began at the cross of Christ. That means that during this time period, both us and Israel are living under the time of the New Testament. We all have to get saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. The New Covenant, however, applies to Israel and only Israel. Now, if you if that throws a wrench in what you understand doctrinally, come back next week because we're going to elaborate more on it. The book of Hebrews is doctrinally to Israel, but is full, get this here, it's doctrinally to Israel, but it is full of New Testament truths. Now, if a truth is a New Testament truth, then that would mean that it applies to us as well as to the Hebrews, because everyone from the time of cross of the cross is under the New Testament. But what we have to divide in the book of Hebrews is what's talking about New Testament and what's talking about New Covenant. Because the covenants were made with the house of Judah and the house of Israel, not the church. Failure to rightly divide the difference between testaments and covenants will cause doctrinal error or will rob you of the blessed truths that God wants you to know. You know, if I, if I over dispensationalize, the book of Hebrews talks about our great high priest. I, I don't want to say, you know, that's a New Testament teaching. That's not a new covenant teaching. I'm glad that I have a high priest today that I can go to. Not just a, it's written doctrinally to the Hebrews, but it is doctrinally, that is church age doctrine, the priesthood of Jesus Christ. But when God starts talking about laboring to enter into a rest, I've got to figure out what exactly is that rest talking about. Brothers and sisters, it's talking about a millennial rest for the people of God, for Israel. I hope you see that without rightly dividing, you cannot be an honest Bible student without leaving out major portions of the Scripture. I don't want to ignore any of God's book, do you? I want to believe it all, and I want to know what applies to me, and I want to know how the rest of it applies to others. Hey, Romans chapter number 9 and verse number 2. Paul says that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants. Do you get that? Paul is saying that the covenants apply to Israel, not the church. And the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Whose are the fathers? 
That's not talking about God the Father. That's talking about Abraham and the patriarchs. These covenants belong to them and their descendants. And of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came. He came to his own, but his own received him not. Who was over all, God blessed forever. Amen. And I close with this passage of Scripture. I want you to think about it. I want you to take it into your heart. In Ephesians chapter number 2 and verse number 12, Paul says to the church at Ephesus, the Gentile church, he says that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. What's the result of being outside of those covenants of promise? He said, having no hope and without God in the world. That, that's some bad news, folks. Being without hope. I don't want to be without hope. I don't want to be without God. But notice what Paul says at the end of verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes were afar off, are made nigh by what? By the blood of Christ. The New Testament. Thank God that we get in. We can get nigh to God. We can have our sins forgiven by the New Testament in His blood, the precious blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.